Hello, folks. You're listening to the Vintage Life Society podcast. I'm your host, Michael Hennessy, and I'm very glad to be back after being away for a little while. So glad to be able to present you some new vintage things to think about and talk about. And thanks for joining me for this week's episode titled, I Want to Go Places and Do Things. This episode is all about planes, trains, automobiles, and ocean liners, and airships, and interstate buses, and rental cars. Back in the early to mid-20th century, getting there might have been more than half the fun. I want to go places and do things, see new faces and new things, go places and do things with you. I want to be stepping in fast time, that's my favorite pastime. I make it to start shaking a shoe. I know that petting is getting to be a popular indoor sport. But listen, dearie, I'm weary of decorating a Davenport. I gotta go places and do things, see new faces and new things. Go places and do things with you. So I get to confess to you that one of my oldest and most loved vintage collections uh, is that of antique travel guides, and because reading them is like going on a guided tour to a place that just doesn't exist anymore, or at least not in the way that it used to. Uh, and I love these things. I love gas station maps. I love steamship pamphlets or, or railway guides and schedules. Now, back in the 1920s, leisure travel became more and more accessible to middle-class Americans. Uh, people were able to afford vacations that included trips farther from home. Uh, special day excursions via rail uh, or by steamer were advertised a lot during the summer months. Now, transatlantic liners offered all kinds of inclusive packages uh, uh, and trips to Britain and Europe, uh, the Mediterranean, uh, the Holy Lands, as they were once called, and even to see the remains of the recently concluded World War, uh, things like see the trenches in Fran France and Belgium, two-week excursion fare at discount rates, that kind of thing. Now, hopping across the pond on a second-class or tourist-class ticket was a lot more affordable than ever, ever before. And after the war, people wanted to see something of life. Veterans returning home from France and Germany felt restless uh, on the family farm or even in their old urban apartments. Uh, women weren't willing to give up the independence they had attained replacing drafted men in factories as drivers and as trolley and bus conductors and even as veterans uh, overseas, too. A lot of them were ambulance drivers, and they wanted to see more of life, too. So here were your options for a transatlantic or transpacific passage by sea. You could book direct by calling one of the passenger liner services. And if you lived in or near a major port city like New York or Boston, uh, Baltimore, Miami, San Francisco, or Seattle, you could just take a bus or a taxi to the docks. If you lived inland, say Chicago or Cleveland or Kansas City, you'd have to arrange a rail trip to the embarkation port first. And many passenger liner services had contacts with their different railroad companies and could easily provide you with a connected itinerary. You would also need to select your class of ticket. So first, second, and third class were the most typical in the earliest years of the 20th century. Class distinction aboard ship was typically very strict. 
it was common and even expected for ocean liners to have completely separate dining and lounge rooms, accommodation decks, and promenade areas for each of the different classes. The largest vessels had separate barber shops, separate beauty parlors, uh, even separate children's playrooms for each class. But by the early 1930s, second class started to be marketed as something new, something called like cabin class. And third class became referred to as tourist or economy class by the liner companies. And one of the reasons was to kind of remove the stigma of the lowest class of transport and to sell more tickets. A lot of people actually came to America, maybe not much earlier, uh, in third class or steerage, even if, as it was called. So going back to maybe to see relatives as steerage wasn't as exciting uh, or as interesting as the memory of the trip that they had had before. Cabin class catered to middle-class travelers, business travelers, and members of the professions who were more economy-minded. They had more space and more comforts on board than third or tourist class, and it appealed to travelers who wanted to avoid some of the expected formalities of traveling first class, especially in public areas, like dressing for dinner. Third or tourist class catered primarily to students, budget travelers, and families going to visit relatives abroad, Accommodation was typically in the lowest decks and more forward, where the pitching action of the waves was a lot more pronounced. And outside spaces for uh, third class or tourist class were often very small and usually cluttered with cargo hatches and other shipboard equipment. Now, when war broke out in Europe in 1939, U.S. travelers focused on national destinations instead of transatlantic travel. Trips to the Caribbean, to Central and South America, uh, became very popular and became popular in popular culture too. But if you really wanted to travel across the U.S., you were probably likely to travel by train. Now today in the U.S., we have a national railway network that is partially corporate and partially government-owned and subsidized, known as Amtrak. Now in the early 20th century, though, there were dozens of private railway companies that owned and operated railway lines in different regions throughout the country. Now, here are a few of the more well-known ones. Uh, the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. Uh, the New York Central. The Baltimore and Ohio. The Pennsylvania Railroad. The Southern Pacific. And the Atkinson, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. Each of these had their own ticket offices and their own stations along their line. One of the most famous railway passenger services was the 20th Century Limited, and it was run by the New York Central Railroad from 1902 to 1967. It ran from Grand Central Terminal in New York City to LaSalle Street Station in Chicago in a little less than 20 hours. Now, that would be trimmed down to about 16 hours by 1938. In the 1920s, a one-way trip from New York to Chicago on the 20th Century Limited would cost you about $32.70, plus a Pullman coach surcharge of $9.60. Now, if you wanted a compartment to yourself on the train, the cost was higher. Here's how it would go. When you arrived at the station, let's say in a taxi cab, you would first be greeted by a railway station porter. Uh, these fellows are often known as a red cap because of the scarlet red uniform caps that they wore. The porter or red cap would take charge of your luggage and ask you which train you were departing by. And you'd tell the porter your train name if you knew it. Most of them actually had names. 
uh, or destination city and departure time. You might say something like, uh, I'm leaving for Chicago on the 20th Century Limited at 6 o'clock, or I'm taking the Adirondack Special leaving at 6.40. Now, if you received your tickets by mail, and often people did, uh, you'd show your ticket to prove which train you were taking or to help verify uh, exactly what train number uh, uh, or gate or, or uh, track number you'd need to go to. The porter would then record this on paper luggage labels and slap them on your luggage and hand you a receipt. And it's customary to tip, of course. And then he would whisk your bags off through the station to be loaded onto the correct baggage car. Now, let's say if you didn't do this by mail and you were picking up your tickets at the ticket office, you'd just tell the porter and he would follow you with your luggage and stand by until your reservations were confirmed. Now, at this point, you'd enter the station and walk over to the ticket counter to claim your reservation. The clerk would check your name and reservation and confirm your selections and collect your total payment, plus tax. The clerk would then also direct you to the departing track number and when the boarding time would begin. Now, if you didn't call ahead to make a reservation, you'd probably have to wait to one side uh, while the clerk would see if there were any no-shows or unreserved places left on the train. Now, now would be a good time to pick up a few magazines or some chewing gum or some other snacks for the trip. Stop by the newsstand on your way to the track entrance. Now, when you arrived at the departure gate, a railway guard would check your ticket and open the gate to let you on board. From this point on, you'd be walking on a scarlet red carpet with the 20th Century Limited logo, alongside about half the length of the train, all the way up to a pair of uniformed railway attendants, one with a clipboard. This first attendant, the one with the clipboard, would check your assigned seat or compartment number, kind of verify it, uh, and direct you to the appropriate car and help you get on board the train. The other attendant would provide male travelers with a fresh carnation for your lapel buttonhole, and female travelers would receive a small bottle of perfume and a bunch of fresh flowers. Now, on board the train, there were luxury amenities on par with the finest ocean-going liners. A brochure for the 20th Century Limited from about 1917 describes the following services uh, available in the club car. An experienced stenographer, quote, for busy men and women to aid them with their correspondence, unquote. Services free. A valet in the club car. Have your clothing sponged and pressed overnight. Barber services, including shampoo, massage, beard trimming. A lady's maid for ladies traveling alone or accompanied by children. These maids, by the way, are also experienced manicures. Now, if you expected to receive telegrams en route, you'd leave your name with the sonographer who would collect any messages for you at each stop. Now, telephone service was available to passengers via a private telephone booth for their use on the train platforms in both New York and Chicago. But by the early 1930s, telephone and telegraph service would be available for passengers while actually on the train. Dinner service would begin about 5 o'clock in the evening and end by 8.30 in the evening. And breakfast service would begin at about 6.30 in the morning and conclude at about 9.40 in the morning, and that's typically when you'd arrive. The porter would ask you what time you would like to take your meal and would arrange with the staff of the restaurant car accordingly. You could also have your meal served to you in your compartment, or even in your Pullman sleeping berth. Now, turndown service in the Pullman sleeping car would begin around 9 o'clock in the evening, and quiet time would be observed in the car by 10 o'clock. 
Now, the Pullman car was kind of a unique uh, setup. You'd have a lower berth and an upper berth, and, and these were known to be notoriously stuffy. Uh, you'd have blankets in the wintertime, and there might be a heater at one end of the car, and you might have a warm end and a cool end. Most people, I think, preferred the lower berth because it was easier to get out uh, and not disturb somebody sleeping below you. Uh, now, there was one combination toilet and restroom uh, for men at one end of the car and for women at the opposite end. Now, if you had a compartment on the train, then you had your own small sink and a toilet and a cabinet in the corner. The night attendant would have converted your compartment couches to beds while you were having dinner and set out fresh soap and towels and extra pillows and blankets, making it as comfy as possible. So in the morning, the day porter would gently announce the time, 6 a.m. for the first call, while walking through the Pullman sleeper car. Now get up quick if you want to shave. Don't linger too long at the sink, chum. There's a line forming in the corridor. Get a move on if you want a cup of coffee. We're due at the station at 9 o'clock. Oh yeah, and don't forget to change your watch from Eastern to Central Time. The Pullman overnight train service from Boston and New York and Philadelphia, or even from Chicago to Miami, was also extremely popular in the 20s and 30s, carrying sun worshippers from snowbound northern cities to warm, sunny resort hotels along the Florida coast. You could even arrange to bring your car along. Now, just like a lot of the luxury liners, there were package railway and hotel trips to places like Yellowstone National Park, or to the California coast and to the Pacific Northwest. All of these were heavily advertised and very popular throughout the 20s and 30s, too. You can find ads for these trips in just about every kind of magazine printed in the 1920s through the 1940s, from Life to National Geographic. Now, travel by airplane was pretty common today, but back then it was sort of transformed in the 20th century from a rich person's sport and a reckless pursuit to a reliably safe and fast alternative to rail travel in less than half a century. Now, when aircraft first started carrying mail, and this is before passengers, uh, eh, a few passengers, in the U.S. in 1919, it was flown by World War I veteran army pilots using surplus World War I era aircraft made of wooden canvas. And in the early 1920s, Air travel was seen as a daredevil sport at best and a dangerous occupation at worst. Flying at night was extremely risky. Flying in inclement weather like sleet or fog was downright dangerous. And flying in snow and ice was just impossible. So slowly through the 1920s, public confidence in air travel increased. Coast-to-coast -coast air mail service began in the U.S. in 1924, in air services between major cities like New York to Philadelphia or Chicago to Cleveland really appealed to businessmen who wanted to get to a sales prospect faster than the competing rail service could bring a competitor. Plus, it was exciting and it was new. It was seen as the future. And by the time Lindbergh flew solo across the Atlantic, there were at least half a dozen airlines operating between different U.S. cities. Now, by 1928, air travel was still a pretty expensive proposition. Its regular use was still mostly regulated to uh, business travelers or the wealthy upper class. The earliest all-metal passenger aircraft started to come into service with two and three engines and a passenger accommodation of six and then eight and then later even 12 or up to 14 passengers. And this helped bring the cost down a little bit. Now, as the number of passengers went up, the need for having some sort of attendant uh, in the cabin came up too. 
Now, the first flight attendants appeared on flights in, in the early 1920s, and these very first attendants were male, uh, much like porters on, on the train uh, or on ocean liners. But female attendants quickly replaced them for a few very practical reasons. Female attendants were typically smaller uh, and less weight to carry on board the aircraft, and weight was critical. It would lower uh, the weight of the airplane and increase the airplane's passenger and freight carrying capacity. Also, female attendants were seen as more comforting on flights than their male counterparts. Now, the very first female flight attendant, Ellen Church, was also a registered nurse, and she flew on regular Boeing air transport flights from San Francisco to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Now, an interview with Ms. Church, as well as with other pioneering uh, uh, flight attendants decades later, revealed how they were often used as examples to nervous flyers. Things like, see, Mr. Johnson, Miss Church is perfectly calm in this rough air. Can't you be too? You get the idea. Now, by the early 1930s, air travel was seen as exciting and glamorous. Famous personalities traveled by air. Pilots like Amelia Earhart and Wiley Post uh, became famous, and the public followed their adventurous travels eagerly. Employment ads in magazines and newspapers carried headlines like, Want to make friends? Let them know you're in aviation. And for a while, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, there was some debate about which kind of air travel would win out over the airlines, airplanes or airships. Now, airships, like the Graf Zeppelin, were classed on par with ocean liner travel, where speed was paramount over certain luxuries. The Graf Zeppelin flew regularly from Germany to South America starting in 1928, only a year after Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic solo in an airplane. On the Hindenburg, for example, you could get from Friedrichshafen, Germany to New York City in two and a half days, while the fastest ocean liners, like the Queen Mary, could take about five days, and most transatlantic vessels took up to 10 days for the crossing. In 1930, airplanes were seen as pretty limited in their fuel capacity and their passenger carrying capacity when compared with airships. But this would change. A number of dramatic airship disasters through the early 1930s totally undermined public confidence in airships, and finally culminating in the Hindberg airship disaster of 1937, effectively quashed airship travel. Meanwhile, airline routes grew and distances between cities increased. Aircraft became larger and stronger and safer and more reliable. And by the mid-1930s, you could sleep on a DC-3 twin-engined aircraft on a trip coast-to-coast. -coast. With about 8 or 10 stops and 32 hours or more of flying time. But you could also travel from San Francisco to Manila on a Trans-Pacific Clipper a journey of roughly six days, a lot faster than most of the Pacific vessels would take, with overnight stops at airline-owned and operated hotels dotted along the Pacific route. These Pacific stopping points had names that weren't all that well-known to Americans in 1935, but in a few years' time they would become bitterly contested battlegrounds, with names that still resonate with the memory of a horrific world war. Wake Island, Midway, Guam in Manila in the Philippines. Now, it wouldn't be until the post-World War II years, through the 1950s, that air travel started to become more affordable to middle-class budgets. When passenger jet travel was introduced in the mid-1950s, it quickly supplanted the prop airliner 
and dominated the luxury travel market through the 1960s and into the 1970s. And by the late 60s, air travel would overtake rail travel in popularity and affordability in the U.S. So now, let's talk about that most humble method of long-distance travel, the interstate bus. Now, travel by bus wasn't always glamorous or fast, but it was usually reliable and certainly much more affordable than travel by train. Now, in many of the more rural areas of the country, getting there by bus was often the only option if you didn't have a car. Bus service often made up the gap between railway stations, especially in the western and the southwestern states. Now, by 1930, more than 100 small bus lines consolidated into what was called the Motor Transit Corporation, but we know them better today as Greyhound. Now, even though they were hit hard during the Depression, in 1934, uh, the inner city and interstate bus lines, including Greyhound, carried more than 400 million passengers, nearly as many as the major railway lines. Okay, now comes the romantic part of bus travel. In 1934, a major motion picture appeared in theaters called It Happened One Night. And in the storyline of the movie, a missing heiress to a fortune, played by Claudette Colbert, Travels by Greyhound Bus with a newspaper reporter, played by Clark Gable, with very romantic consequences. It was an extremely popular film, and it is credited as the cause of a 50% rise in Greyhound Bus ridership the next year, surpassing train travel for the first time in 1935. Now, Greyhound built on this success by building brand new bus station terminals all over the country in late Art Deco, kind of streamlined, modern style from about 1937 to 1945. Many of them are very distinctive and a lot of them are still in existence today. Now, interstate bus transport companies were under federal regulation and in 1955, the Interstate Commerce Commission ruled that interstate bus operations could not be segregated by race and most of the time they were up to this point. However, bus terminals, stations, Bus line operated hotels and other regional buses or inner city buses continued to be segregated by race in many parts of the country. And it was not until the passing of the Civil Rights Acts in the mid 60s that federal protections extended beyond buses to include stations and hotels and other public areas. And even so, Greyhound only began to hire black and female drivers by the late 1970s. Now, it was the beginning, uh, the building of the interstate highway system, I should say, beginning in 1956, that really allowed the personal car to be the preferred method of interstate travel. But even if you didn't own your own car, a rental car or a U-drive car or some other car for hire service, those existed as early as the introduction of the automobile itself. In the very, very beginning, around 1905, renting a car really meant renting a car and driver. Owning a car was still a relatively expensive hobby, and most people wealthy enough to own a car also hired a driver as part of their household. The engineering complexity of these early automobiles also often required an expert or somebody who knew the car very well for constant maintenance. And most wealthy people wouldn't bother with this. They'd hire somebody. A driver at that time was also expected to be a competent mechanic. Now, before 1920, road conditions varied wild, widely across the country, and automobile breakdowns were pretty common. Parts would sometimes have to be machined locally, uh, or the machine itself would have to be towed home by horse, 
or the nearest railway station and then wait uh, a two or three week replacement part ordering by mail process or telegraph by mail process. There were very few garages. There were very few gasoline stations and tow trucks were either non-existent or rare at best. Now, by the early 1920s and mid-1920s, more and more people had learned to drive. And again, uh, many of these people were ambulance drivers during the war uh, or had learned to drive during World War I, and they knew how. And cars were getting a lot to be a lot more reliable, too. Uh, they were becoming more affordable. Uh, many men and women had learned how to drive a car uh, or a truck or an ambulance uh, during the war years, and some took to jobs driving taxis when they came back. Some started car-for-hire companies, and others taught others how to drive. The Saunders drive-it-yourself car rental system, for example, began in Omaha, Nebraska with one car in 1916, but it was available in 56 cities by 1926. And in Chicago, you could rent a Model T from Walter Jacobs' Rent-A-Car in 1918 until he was bought out by a guy named John Hertz in 1923. Now, by the 1930s and 1940s, the drive-yourself type of car rental service was quite common, but often local or regional. You might find a few rental cars parked at a gas station uh, or at the used car lot on the corner. In a larger city like Chicago or Los Angeles, uh, you would probably see a few national rental car agencies uh, with offices in town. Now, a lot of times these cars were typically rented for business use, just like today. A company employee might travel by train to a central location and pick up a prearranged rental car and then visit a series of project sites or business locations in a certain area. But another very popular use of these rental cars were for visits, not just around, uh, around the country, but across the border into Mexico from a lot of the southwestern states and especially from California. Rental cars were often newer than many of the vehicles that some people owned themselves, so having a reliable car on a sightseeing trip made sense. And many people also preferred putting the mileage on a rental car than on their own personal car at home. Now, if you decided to drive your own car, or let's say if you did own your own car and you wanted to take a trip, uh, in the early 20s and, and 30s, you probably joined AAA, uh, the American Automobile Association. They would provide route maps to members starting as early as the 1910s, and some of these are quite impressive. Uh, they would have scenic drives that they would provide their members to kind of experience. And these are really popular weekend trips in a lot of different parts of the country. The AAA maps would grade the quality of the road at different points along the way. Um, sometimes gravel, sometimes paved, um, sometimes unknown. It might even be marked that way. But by the late 1920s, as more and more roads were paved and improved, these roadmaps began to focus a lot more on amenities like finding hotels and restaurants or finding a rest stop and especially finding a gasoline station. With more and more demand for gasoline and gas stations throughout the 20s and 30s in America, there also came the rise of the free road map and the free restroom stop. Now, prices for gasoline and oil were taxed and federally regulated, so companies competed with each other over sideline amenities, things like gasoline additives, uh, restroom availability at first, and then cleanliness, friendly service, free up-to-date road maps, uh, free water, free air for your tires, all kinds of things like this. Now, 
As a member of the Vintage Life Society, this is where we would explore deeper into how people actually traveled by car, by train, for the airship, for the bus, learning obsolete skills like how to read and fold a roadmap or how to pack your cosmetics in a train case for use on the train or how to pack your luggage for use in the cabin or wanted on board versus stowed below, how to shave on a train or at a gasoline station sink. Now, if that sounds like something you'd like to learn about too, then visit us online at DejaVuIndustries.com to learn more about the Vintage Life Society and subscribe to our email list for details on when membership in the VLS is open. Well, I hope you'll join me again for our next podcast entitled All Alone by the Telephone, where I'll tell you about how people used the telephone in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Until then, thanks again for listening to the Vintage Life Society podcast. I'm your host, Michael Hennessy. See you when. Oh, man.